man. It's hard to hold Woo. still with that music, with that beat <laughs> dropping. And uh, we got to buy some house, right? <laughs> we got to, well, we'll get to that. I'm, one, I'm excited, second, though, Reggie. Right? You understand. First, we have to introduce ourselves. Okay, okay. okay. So, who am I? I'm Robert. And I'm Reggie. And this is Zone 3 Podcast. And yes. who are we joined by? Tobias Gibbs. I said boy. <laughs> I'm nervous, okay? We got a big name today. We got Toby. MRI Thank you, Toby. Himself. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, guys. So, who other than Toby Gilk to discuss MRI safety? Yeah. Um, and that's today's topic. So thank you for joining us, Toby. And I feel like it's not just MRI safety. It's an evaluation of the 20 years that we've had, you know, with MRI safety being as serious as it has been since, you know, the death back in 2001, Michael Calabini, right? Right. Yeah. So, yo, this is going to we'll be a good episode, touch up on that. And actually, that's a kind of a big reason for today's episode because uh, 2021 is what? Well, it's the 20-year anniversary of that right. incident. And we'll get into right. what happened and all that. And we'd love to hear your uh, description of it. Right. And um, we are giving, doing a giveaway of a MRI safety notebook. Yes. So leave a comment. And let me just show you guys, because I'm, I'm really happy with myself about how this turned out. So inside, on the inside panel, there's actually parameter trade-offs. And on Cheek the back sheet. panel, there is your, oh, I'm sorry. The back panel has the trade-offs. And then and you can see it on our website. I'll put a link in the description. Who remembers DOS for dummies? <laughs> Who remembers that? <laughs> I do. Yeah, I still have We got answer. MRI safety or MRI uh, parameters. For so, uh, so all you have to do to qualify for the giveaway is just leave a comment. Um, yeah, and just let us know how you feel about how things are going with safety. Preferably a complimentary compliment. <laughs> comment. <laughs> but no, just kidding. We'll take any compliment. Yeah. If, or, uh, any Keep compliment. it real. We'll take any comment. <laughs> we'll take any comment, whether it's a compliment or not. Um, but all right. Hey, so let's if get you to would, the Yeah, let's get to the man of the hour. This is Toby. If you would, Toby, if people don't already introduce yourself. Oh, no, you already introduce yourself if you sure. would. So, uh, Toby, Tobias Gilk. Yes. Um, I am an architect by training. Um, Batman uh, by night. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. <laughs> I've never seen the two of you in the same place. <laughs> There's a reason for that. <laughs> now, um, I became really interested in MRI safety, um, as we talked about on the Pretty prior episode, so. uh, when we were talking about facility design. I became interested in MRI safety through the zones and doors and access controls and, and the physical environment piece of it. Um, and I thought I was hot stuff. You know, I got right. invited to sit on the ACR's MRI safety committee and I was, you know, I'm the only <laughs> architect on this group. Right. Bow um, down. <laughs> that's right. I walked into the room and, you know, 95% of all the conversations just sailed right over my head. And that was a lousy feeling having gone in thinking that I was hot stuff. <laughs> um, but the thing that it, it taught me, and this was back 2005 when I, 2006 when I did this uh, with the ACR, the thing that it taught me was you don't know MRI safety, Toby. You know bricks and mortar. You know, <laughs> right. If you want to know MRI safety, you need to understand the physics and the clinical applications and the day-to-day -day operations and, you know. Right. Because you for taking on that task because... Well, I, at that point, you know, I was already, I was all in, you know. Right. I was committed that this was something that I was going to, to really do. Right. Um, and so... That was just the next logical step for me. Right. Um, and so I um, 
from that point forward, I, you know, said, okay, so the physical environment safety piece of it is important. I still believe that very strongly that that's, that's an important piece. But if, if you design the building to really kind of shape the activities inside the building, you know, to shape patient care, then if you don't understand what the patient care objectives are, right. you're just, you're making pretty pictures, you know, right. nothing wrong with pretty pictures, but I want to design pretty pictures that also, you know, help patients get better scans and right. help facilities operate more effectively and more efficiently. Right. And out of that, you know, Saw this I, huge gap, huh? Well, <laughs> and I wanted to knit the the safety elements into those those other concerns and right. considerations, right. Um, and so that that's that's my origin story. That's right. you know how well, I came to be. Well, and, and you were telling us in the last episode too, in like 1997, right? So there were pretty much no safety guide. I mean, minimal safety guidelines, right? None. Back then, <laughs> right? Well, you used a good word there, origin. And I think what played a big part in the safety, MRI safety or, or origin of MRI safety would be what happened in 2001. So right. we keep alluding to it. It makes it more suspenseful, if you will, right? <laughs> <laughs> People are hanging on by the edge of their seats. But if you would just kind of dive into that, what happened in 2001 that's kind of led to us being more cognitive of... Right. So... I want to make sure that that I'm clear that it's not like MRI safety began in 2001 when this accident happened. There were right. people, there have long been people who were concerned about it. There, uh, but there was just a leap forward in the progression of the well, understanding of safety, right? How important it was. So from the late 80s and through the 90s, you know, the the MRI crowd was sort of, you know, weekend physicists, you know, <laughs> the techs who had the slide rule or at least knew how to use one, you know, right. if they didn't have it in their pocket um, <laughs> because they had to, you know, they had to essentially, you know, kick the machine when it wasn't working right. And right. so it wasn't just your service engineer, you know, your tech really had to be all things to all people. Right. Um, and so... Those early techs and early physicists were really, you know, Swiss Army knife. You know, they they could do the clinical, they could do the technical, they could troubleshoot their system, they I could mean, do image quality stuff. They had to tune the frequencies back then. Exactly right. right. Oh my God, that's crazy so, to me. So safety absolutely was a part of their repertoire of of knowledge and skills. Right. And I don't mean to take anything away from any of those people. Right. But the accident that you were tipping the, the hand of the story here, um, <laughs> in 2001, really sort of said, okay, this needs to be something we're all concerned about. This can't just be the the Swiss Army knife, you know, super tech, right. you know, this can't live just within their domain. This needs right. to be something that radiology needs to be aware of, right. needs to be concerned about, needs to address. And the event itself, um, so this was 2001, um, many of us, if we're asked to kind of identify what we know about this event, you know, young boy, oxygen tank, uh, somebody brought it into the room when they shouldn't have. Right. right? And that's right. pretty much all we know about it. Right. The actual story is much more complicated, much more involved oh. and has a whole lot more to teach us. So... The boy, six-year-old kid, Michael Colombini. I have a six-year-old, by the way. So you can probably relate Red to the ne next part. Yeah. So he's, it's summertime, um, and he wants to go play on the school playground. 
And so he's running around like a crazy six-year-old kid does. Um, and face plants on pavement. Ooh. And gets up and he's woozy dizzy. And his mom, who's with him, understandably, freaks out, takes him to the hospital, takes yeah. him to the ED. They want to check for a possible fracture, skull fracture, because he, he landed pretty hard. Right. Um, and they do a CT and they find an astrocytoma. Um, now, astrocytoma typically isn't found until a patient is symptomatic. And by the time you're symptomatic, it's too late to do anything. Right. And it's a death sentence. Right. Um, and so late childhood, young adulthood is sort of when patients become symptomatic. Um, and at that point when they find it, you know. So it was an incidental finding. It was an incidental finding. This was like you know, a, a bolt from heaven, you know, right. we're going to help you find this thing that had you not found, it would have killed your kid right. in 10, 15, 20 years. Um, so they, um, they were at like sort of a smaller community hospital. They got transferred to the larger county hospital. Um, they do pre-op MRI. They identify the, the, extent of the tumor. Um, a day or two later, he's whisked into uh, the OR, do the operation, remove the brain tumor. Um, they're very optimistic about this. Um, kid's doing well post-op and, the, you know, they're going to get ready to discharge this kid. But they need a baseline because they're going to bring him back for imaging every six months for the next five years to make sure that they got the full margin of the tumor and there's not recurrence. Um, and so before they discharge the kid, they're going to send him for one last MR. Um, now, you can imagine a six-year-old kid who's just gone through brain surgery is probably not excited about anything else that has to happen right. in the hospital. Right. And so he's ticked off that he has to get this. So they told him, we're going to discharge you today. You know, he wants to go home and anything between now and going home is an unwelcome event. It doesn't matter if you're six or 96, you want to go home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, his dad is with him. His dad accompanies him down to the, the MRI addition to the hospital. Um, and they drop dad in the waiting room and they bring the kid back there's a little induction area just right across the hall from, from the magnet room. And there's an anesthesiologist and the techs who are working that day. Never seen this anesthesiologist before, you know, not exactly sure who he is, you know, what he's doing, but I guess he's here. So he must, you know, he must be authorized, must be okay. Right. right? Um, so the anesthesiologist gives the kid a sedative, um, they, what we, zone is this in? In, I guess, what today we would call zone three, um, okay. but they didn't actually regulate it the, you know, the way that we understand kind of zone three spaces today. Right. Um, so they bring him into the magnet room and they shift him over to the table um, and he pushes through the sedative and they give him a second dose. Um, and they're positioning him, him on the propofol. I don't know why I'm curious, but was it? Was it I don't remember exactly what it is. I'd have to go back and look it up. Um, but they get him positioned on the table, and there it was one of the split head coils, and they're you know putting the top half of the head coil on yeah. the kid, doing a brain study to, right. for the baseline. Um, and the kid sees this, you know, the coil coming down at him, and the kid starts to you know push through the second dose of sedative, and so they give him a third dose. 
um, of sedative. Now he's compliant. And they got the nasal cannula on him. They got the pulse oximeter on him. They got the top half of the head coil on him. The tech, you know, who was helping with the positioning, leaves the anesthesiologist in the room and goes out and around back to the um, to the console. And this was 2001, and you know there was a lot of prep work. There was a lot of post production work, you know, from from a study. Right. Um, and so the tech is kind of getting everything geared up while the anesthesiologist is, you know, doing finishing touches on making sure everything's fine. And the anesthesiologist sees the pulse oximeter go, you know, 97, 96, 95, 94, 93. And he goes That's over crazy. to the wall outlet, uh, the, you know, the valve yeah. for the oxygen, and he starts adjusting it. And the little green floaty ball that tells you how many liters you're de delivering in the little tapered glass right. thing on top of the, the valve, um, the little green floaty ball is sitting at the bottom of the glass and he's turning the knob left and right and, and, and there's right nothing moving. And so he goes to, the, at this installation, there wasn't an intercom or something like that. So he goes to the window, the observation window, you know, bangs on it. Help, yeah. You know, points to the door and the tech comes and meets him at the doorway and the the anesthesiologist says, Patient's desatting, you know, the oxygen's not working. I need you to, you know, you got to figure out what's going wrong. You got to fix the oxygen supply coming right. into the room. The anesthesiologist goes back to the boy, watching him desat, I don't know. Um, right. And the tech who was about to do the scan, because there was so much sort of post-production work associated with scans at that time, you had to have two, two techs for a single magnet because one of them was always doing post-production from, you know, the, the study that was just completed. Um, so tech number one goes to tech number two who had done the previous scan um, and says, Hey, you know, I'm relatively new here. You've been here longer and I have anesthesiologist is complaining about the oxygen, not working in the magnet room. I know there's something weird about the O2 system feeding the room. Um, can you fix it? And the more senior tech, tech number two, says, yeah, this is something you should probably know. Um, mm. So why don't I show you what's up oh. with the oxygen system? And I'm going to take you and, and I, I, I'll teach you how to do this and we can do it together. All right. So tech number two takes tech number one into the um, equipment room, the system component room for the MRI. And any of you who go into an equipment room today have no idea what an equipment room was like in the 80s, 90s, right. early 2000s. Number one, they were enormous. <laughs> Number two, you had what sounded like every fan ever created in <laughs> God's green earth right. located in one room. And the, the, the noise level in those rooms when you walked in um, was really incredible. Um, you couldn't hear a tornado, you know, happening right outside the building right. um, because it was so loud in there. And to keep it from annoying everybody everywhere else, those rooms were really well soundproofed. So the two of them go into the system component room and they are acoustically isolated from the rest of the world. Just to illustrate the paint the picture. So the anesthesiologist is left alone, unsupervised, 
with a six-year-old patient in zone four right. while the two techs walk away. Right. right. Update the oxygen. Yeah, okay. Right. An anesthesiologist who, as far as the techs know, have never has never been to MRI before. Right. So the anesthesiologist continues watching the boy DSAT. Right. Um, you know, 89, 88, oh, 87. Yeah. And he is freaking out. He's got to do something. Right? And he's... He doesn't know that the techs have gone into essentially, you know, sound isolation chamber and he keeps on yelling out to them, you know, hey, what what are you guys doing with the oxygen? I need the oxygen for this kid. Right. Um, at the same time as the techs go into the system component room to try and uh, restore the oxygen, instead of being like most hospitals where everything comes through a piped in central supply, they actually had a bulk storage tank that lived in the equipment room. And then they just mm -hmm. poked the pipe through the wall to the outlet that was there. Well, if that tank in the equipment room runs dry, you got to disconnect it and the valve and the regulator, and you got to move it out of the way and you got to roll the other giant tank in. You got to reconnect the valve and the regulator and rehook everything up and turn it back on. And it's right. an ordeal, right. right? It's not a quick fix, right? No. no. <laughs> um, so the two techs are in there doing that. Not only doing it, but, you know, doing sort of a how-to instructional process of doing it. And the anesthesiologist is losing his cool. Right. Um, and no, understandably. <laughs> In this same moment, a nurse who had accompanied a, an earlier patient down, um, and she had left something, she left a chart or God knows what, but she had left something. She comes back to the department to retrieve whatever it was that she left, lets herself into what we today would call the zone three space where this uh, prep induction area was. Right. Um, and she hears the anesthesiologist losing his stuff, you know, inside the magnet room. Nobody's around. And yeah, she's looking around, there's nobody there. And the anesthesiologist is saying, my patient's desatting, I need oxygen, I need it now. Right. And the nurse thinks to herself, well, wait a second, when I was down here earlier today, I remember seeing some oxygen cylinders. If the anesthesiologist needs oxygen, I know where to get them, right? I know where to get it. Right. And so she goes and she picks up an oxygen cylinder and she calls out to the anesthesiologist, um, hey doc, if you need oxygen, I've got some, here it is. And she and the doc meet at the doorway and she hands the oxygen cylinder to the doc. Mm -hmm. He turns around, takes two steps into the room and the magnet grabs it out of his arms. Was it a one five or three? It was a one five. Um, and the oxygen tank flies in, Missile busts effect, the, right? the head coil, <sighs> hits this kid who just a day or two before had a craniotomy, right? Yeah. To remove a brain tumor. And the oxygen tank hits him in the face and in the head. And it, you know, oscillates back and forth before it comes to rest. Right. So it smacks him more than once. Um, and so now... And the techs are nowhere... Still not back yet. Right? No, they're they're still Doing trying training. to fix the the oxygen. Right. So, um, the nurse or the anesthesiologist calls the code team. The code team rushes in. The code team freaks the hell out. Yeah, you so know the code team's rushing into in zone four. Zone four, what we consider zone four at least. Right. Um, code team. He, the boy is wedged in there with the oxygen cylinder, oh, and nobody's quenched it. They're like. What do we you do? know, we don't know how to extract a patient safely. 
So there was a paramedic ambulance crew in the ED. They had dropped off a patient. So the code team goes, gets the paramedic crew from the ED, brings them in, and they, with the code team, sort of do an extrication and pull the boy out of the magnet um, and get him out and are, you know, taking him out of the MRI department. And in this moment, the two techs come out of the equipment room and go, hey, guys, we fixed the oxygen. Oh, that's tough. And they see them wheeling the bloody boy, you know, out of the, the magnet room. Man, my heart goes out to those parents. Yeah, um, to everybody right. involved, really. I have lots of questions. <laughs> Where do I start? Um, I don't know. That's just really upsetting. It's like really, up, I got a six. But I, I can, like, I can easily imagine how that could happen without some of the the things that we have in place now. Sounds like a lot of things went wrong. Well, and I'm going to challenge you on that a lack little bit. Lack of uh, educated personnel. Personnel would right. be a big part of that. Right. So to me, there are two sort of central takeaways from this story. Right. Um, one of them is that every bad step that was taken in this event was somebody who thought that they were helping. Right. Somebody who thought that they were doing the right thing exactly. in that situation. Right. They just didn't have sort of the big picture appreciation of, of how things change in the MRI environment and how what might be appropriate somewhere else inside the hospital is the absolute last thing you want to do in this part of the hospital. For sure. So there... Was there any disciplinary action against those techs? Was there any... Anything there was the license. Uh, I don't believe so. I mean, um, right. they're trying to do what's right. They were just trying to fix the oxygen. The, well, they walked the, away from zone four and left it unsupervised. So the the operational structure of this MRI service was a mess. Right. So the one of the best things that came out of it, other than kind of the downstream stuff with right. the ACR and that kind of thing, right. the guy who was the CEO of the hospital, um, he probably lost his job because of this, but he came out and he said, this is our hospital. This was our patient. This is our responsibility. Right. He said that from the beginning. There was no sort That's of awesome. legal hedging of, you know, well, accidents happen and yada. yada. He came out from the very beginning and said, we're responsible for the safe care of this patient, and therefore we are responsible for the accident that Which happened. Morally, I think is the best way of it. Right. So, it, I yeah, I, I think it took a lot of moral courage to to and do this that. This was in the, and I believe in one of the New England states, right? Right. Yeah. So it was uh, Westchester County, uh, New York, which is a fairly affluent sort of bedroom community outside of New York City. Right. Man, that's a tough one. But I guess glass half full from this, a lot of safety uh, policies implemented. So so that hits on the second sort of major takeaway from this is this accident directly precipitated the ACR white paper that became the guidance document that became the manual. Um, and so, yes, this document did create the single best body of best practices um, relative to, to MRI safety. 
the thing that I find frustrating is that if we pick apart sort of the, the specific contributing elements um, to the, the Columbini accident. Right. So, so what, um, the, the anesthesiologist didn't have any MRI safety training as far as the techs knew. And right. There was no sort of structure for identifying that person. Right. Today, you look at any of the accreditation organizations um, the minimum MRI safety training required for an anesthesiologist who's providing patient care in the MRI environment, zero. You don't need it for joint commission. That's you don't true. need it for ACR accreditation. You don't need it for any of the accreditation organizations, right? Right. Um, so the techs and situational awareness. Now, they had two techs at that point in time. Just from a workflow standpoint, you had to have two techs per magnet to do that. Right. But now everybody's up in arms because the ACR manual recommends plus one staffing, that however many magnets you have sharing a, a shared zone three, that you have at least one additional person beyond the techs who are driving those magnets. There are sites who are, you know, well, losing their stuff up. because, you know, oh, we need to hire another person. You, do you know how much that's going to cost? Right. So we've, from a staffing standpoint, we've kind of given up on the idea that we're going to have redundancy as, as a minimum requirement. It's a recommendation, but right. even that recommendation is, is looser than the situation that they had, you know, at that site at that time. Right. Um, so, and, and nobody requires it. Not a single accrediting or licensing organization requires that you have any kind of staffing redundancy. Right. So that piece isn't there. Um, zones. The nurse had sort of free access into, you know, zone three. Um, joint commission in their diagnostic imaging standards kind of describes, I think, I think they go to great lengths to describe the zones without ever saying zones or without ever sort of paying homage to, to the ACR. Right. Um, um, so joint commission actually does kind of have zone language in their standards, but I've gone to all kinds of MRI facilities, you know, older MRI facilities where the entrance to the magnet room is off of the shared radiology corridor. Oh, you know, right. you're going down the corridor, you take the first door on your right, you're in the control room. You continue down the corridor, you take the second door on your right, you're in the magnet room. You take the third door on your right, you're in the equipment room. Right. If you take the doors on your left, you're in CT or fluoro or something else, right? Mm -hmm. So everybody who's going to any radiology procedure is walking right past the MRI room. And if you get confused about what did, was it second door on the left or second door on the right, you know, you open it up doors, and right? you're opening it up and walking in. Yeah. I have never, ever heard of a facility um, essentially getting dinged by the Joint Commission, even though they have zone language in their standards, you know, saying this is an unacceptable condition. Right. So, so if we look at the flip side of the the Columbini accident, it absolutely did generate sort of the, the best body of best practices that we have ever had in MR um, in the ACR, various iterations of that document. And yet we could replicate that accident again today yeah. pretty easily at a site that chose to only do the minimum required for licensure or accreditation um, because the, the minimum expectations in MRI are still 
far lower than would prevent that accident from from happening again today. Right. Wow. That's kind of scary thinking about that, right? Which is actually kind of really touched on the importance of having somebody who is dedicated staff technologist for safety. And that's where MRSOs, MRSEs kind of come into play. And I'm actually curious if, before we get into what those are, let's first talk about what's the difference between the two. Because I'm curious, like, what is Oh, yeah. Is? So, so an MRSO, uh, let me analogize. So nobody would have a nuke med program, a hot lab, or, you know, fluoro. You can't have those programs and not have a radiation safety officer. Right. Why? Well, because radiation is harmful, right? And if people are inadvertently exposed to radiation, um, that would be bad. And so we want to make sure both from an employee safety standpoint and general population and, and patient safety standpoint that we manage this sort of in the air physical environment risk um, effectively. And so we're going to put a person in charge. We're going to call them the radiation safety officer. And that person is going to be answerable for the facility's performance in, you know, uh, you know are we checking our aprons? You know, right. are we checking dosimetry badges? Are, you know, is the collimation correct on, you know, the right. devices? And you know, wh where are we scattering? And is the shielding correct? So, we have all of these kind of formal responsibilities and procedures that we put on this person that we call, you know, the RSO, the radiation right. safety officer. Now to give perspective, all that didn't just automatically happen with radiation either too. So there was incidents that had to happen with that, right? Like just, you know, rotogen and, and just the, uh, they could tell that radiation exposure caused harmful events, right? Right. Um, and, and a lot of that structure and a lot of the regulatory stuff right. for ionizing radiation really came out of the Manhattan Project. Oh, so right. this was this was government regulation to protect government employees and government contractors right. for, you know, well, we don't want people working for us to get exposed to this. And so a lot of sort of the basic structure of ionizing radiation safety came out of the nuclear weapons program, right. World War II. So um, and so when we started having x-rays and we were like, oh, wait a minute, x-rays, you know, can cause cancer. We're like, oh, hey, wait a minute. We got all of this body of of standards and you know government Beta. regulations, yeah. right? You know, we're just going to bring that over and we're going to use that as sort of healthcare regulations for ionizing radiation exposure. Kind of modern day version of copy paste, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, why reinvent the wheel? Right. And and it has done really Smart. well in terms of protecting patients. Right. Now, so that's the ionizing side. The MRI side, it's almost like, well. MRI doesn't use ionizing radiation, therefore it must be safe be because safe, right? it's the radiation that's the unsafe thing. You right. know? That's like saying, you know, well, people die in car crashes, so therefore jumping out of an airplane with a parachute must be safe because, you know, right. you're not going to die in a car crash if you jump out of a plane with Apples a parachute. And, oranges, right? yeah. and, and nobody <laughs> stopped the thing, you know. So true. Maybe jumping out of an airplane with a parachute has a different set of risks that we need to manage in a different way. Right. And um, that, from from like a regulatory standpoint, has never happened for MRI. Right. Um, I think it's only six of the 50 U.S. states um, 
have um, minimum requirements for MR tax. Oh. Um, and those that have minimum requirements, generally it's an RTR. Oh, um, right. And so we're going to require that you go and you get trained in ionizing radiation in order to administer, if, if we require anything at all from right. a state licensing standpoint, we're going to require that you get trained in ionizing radiation to you know, run an MR. Who comes up with this? Right, I mean, logic, what right. sense does this make? Right. Um, I was talking with a tech um, in Massachusetts um, who got his, he's, he's an MR tech. He's an RTR, yeah. um, but he practices MR. And he got his um, CE credits his M, in MR. Mm -hmm. State won't count them. Oh, wow. You're an RTR. You need to have ionizing radiation CE credits. But... I, I scan on an MR scanner, the CE credits, these MRI safety CE credits that I got are more relevant to the what health and safety of my patients. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, they don't count because you're an RTR, so you need to have, you know, ionizing radiation right. CEs. So the whole thing on the MRI side from a regulatory oversight standpoint is so incredibly messed up. Right. So, mark, right? yeah. yeah. So... So we've, we've missed so many opportunities to, to kind of put structures in place that, that help protect patients, help protect caregivers. So the idea of the MRSO, and I know this is a long sort of rambling lead up to oh, answering your question. No, we love it. Um, <laughs> the idea of the MRSO is, okay, we're going to name individuals, right? Just like we do on the RSO side. Right. We may not have the whole body of, of kind of regulatory structure that goes along with the, the RSO side, but at the very least, we're going to say, you know, you, Reggie, you are the person, you know, that we're going to turn to if right. we have questions or problems or congratulations or whatever right. on MRI safety. You, Reggie, you are now the guy, right? right? Well, now all of a sudden, you know, it's now there's somebody... <laughs> who has responsibility, who has authority, who right. can say, wait a minute, I have to answer for this? Right. You know, uh, we're changing this. We are not doing things the oh, way that we've been so doing right it. right about Right? That. Yep. I got to answer for this. I got to answer for it. Yep. Right. That's so right. one of the, one of the, the and, and it, it was developed with the best of, of all possible intentions, but it's, it's just gone horribly wrong. The idea that MRI safety is everybody's responsibility. All of my techs, you know, all of the radiologists, they, you know, they take MRI safety really seriously. Right. Okay, great. So when there's a problem, whose door do I knock on? You know, now all of a sudden, it's no longer everybody's responsibility. Now it's somebody else's. You know, <laughs> right. you know. Right. Oh, there's a problem. Oh, when that's that I didn't hear that day. That <laughs> part's not my responsibility. <laughs> right. right. Well, responsibility is like a beach ball. You can wash your hands, clean it, just pass it to somebody else. Right. And that's typically in my experience. What happens? We have MRSOs at our facility. Oh yes. And they take on the responsibility of the preemptive um, research, but once that patient shows up. And you're the scanning tech, it's on you as far as like, you know, making sure that they're um you know compatible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
It's interesting too how you say that, uh, you know, you got to pinpoint that person because I literally just had to renew my CPR license and they were just talking about if you don't say, hey, you go get the, uh, you know, defibrillator, then if you're just like, hey, someone give me a defibrillator, everyone's kind of looking at each other like, uh, who's going to get the defibrillator, right? right? But if you say, hey, you right there, go get the defibrillator, then that person knows like, oh, okay, you know, I need to, you know. Go get the defibrillator type of thing. So, so there's a tactic with my kids. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's this uh, story that I remember, and, and clearly it sort of burned itself into my memory um, from like a high school or college psychology class. Um, a story of this young woman, Kitty Genovese. Um, and so this was, I don't know, I want to say 30s or 40s, uh, 1930s, 1940s, New York. Um, she was a, a single woman who lived in this big apartment complex, sort of a, a U-shaped apartment complex. You know, mm -hmm. half of all the units look into the middle of the U and half of the apartments look out, you know, out everywhere else. Big multi-story building and dozens, if not hundreds of units that kind of looked into the central entry courtyard where this was. So she was a nurse, I think. Anyway, she she had worked a late shift or whatever, and she's coming home in the middle of the night or late in the evening anyway. Um, and so she's in that central courtyard, you know, walking into her apartment building, and she gets attacked. Uh, she gets mugged in, you know, sort of that entry courtyard. Right. Um, she gets beaten and killed. Um, and... Police are looking around, going. Nobody called. Nobody called the police. You know, they show up afterwards. You right. know, but nobody called saying that it's like stadium seating, basically. So they, these psychologists, go and they, in, you know, do interviews with everybody who lives in the apartment building, and it's like, were you here when that happened? You know, were you aware that it was happening? What they find out was that there were a dozen or more um, residents um, or or families who. Uh, heard her screaming, saw it happening, went to the window so that they could watch to see when the police arrived, but not one of them called because the thinking was, well, there's so many units that look into this central courtyard that surely somebody else called. Somebody called. Yeah. So, so this notion that, you know, everybody's responsible Call it it diffuses that the sense of personal ownership, personal responsibility yeah. so much that we may think that it's helping, but it that that sense of it's everybody's responsibility. We all you know take right. a take a role in this may have the exact opposite effect of what you think. It may in fact make it harder for people to you know right. to act to in act. the way that you want them to for sure and you explain it that way for sure that makes total sense yeah man so so the the MRSO is is the um you know the analog to the RSO you know specific to to MRI um it most often is sort of a senior MR tech um you know somebody who's played the game for a while and and has a good idea of what happens in in sort of the practical world of of patient care right. um, and at the same time has the technical understanding of well if we need to drop this pulse sequence from 2 watts per kilogram to 0.5 you know how do i do that you know what what challenges are inherent in that 
or what difference does it make if I use the body coil for transmitter, if I'm using a local TR coil, you know, for knee or head or, or whatever, and how does that impact the safety of this implant or device or foreign body and right. that kind of thing. So you want somebody who kind of has that both technical and, and practical, you know, experience in terms of patient care and, and kind of bringing it together. The other two MR safety roles are the, the MRMD, the MR medical director. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea behind that is, so you've got a radiology group, right? Right. And you've got the, you know, probably somebody or a couple somebodies who are, you know, particularly good at breast. And so they're doing breast MR and they're doing mammos and, you know, you got the ortho specialists and you got... You got people who are body part or or disease progress specialists, right. um, but you don't necessarily have modality specialists. Radiologists aren't trained in a modality; they're trained in anatomy and pathology. Right. Right. The good ones pick up the modality You're along right. the way, um, <laughs> but that's not something that's part of their their formal training. Right. Um, and so. You have a radiology group that's got a dozen, 20 radiologists. Do you know if any of them really, you know, get MR? I've, right. had, I've had several conversations where you call the rad and to get approval on an implant of some sort. And they say, I don't know. What do you think? And, and there is nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with the radiologist recognizing sort of the limits of their knowledge and turning to the techs who in a lot of ways are going to have more, more specific knowledge about sure. implants and devices and scan parameters and what it means for this patient as opposed to that patient. And, and I, those I, are the smart radiologists. <laughs> those are the smart radiologists, but within, you know, a practice group within a, you know, a, a radiology group, there has to be, at least one, you know, radiologist who, you know, may not be the person who's on call, you know, overnight on Sunday night. Right. But there has to be somebody within that practice group who says, you know, I'm going to set the direction for this group in terms of MRI practice and MRI safety. And that person, the, the MRMD, maybe it's it's the head of the group. Maybe it's just sort of a designated MR head of the group, you right. know, kind of thing. And that person really needs to say... Okay, within the within the the practice, you know, this is where we're strong. This is where we're weak. These are the individuals who, from an MR standpoint, are strong. These are the individuals from an MR standpoint who are weak. We need to kind of elevate the skills, the knowledge of the weaker ones. Um, we need to develop tools um, that essentially mean that we're delivering consistent, you know, decision making, consistent patient care. Um, and logical decisions, right? Exactly. So I, um, I go to sites and I do uh, facility evaluations. And the very first thing that I like to do before I start spouting off and giving suggestions <laughs> is I like to go and I observe. Right. Um, and I started doing this thing just a couple of years ago, and, and I kicked myself for not doing it before. But um, if I'm visiting a facility for, you know, a week, a Monday through Friday or whatever, I want to show up on um, Saturday or Sunday and I want to watch the overnight weekends um, because those people never get... Different set of rules. <laughs> the, exactly. <laughs> so I'm... It's like substitute teacher. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So 
it's you know 3 a.m. Uh, on a Sunday morning or something like that, and that I'm sitting with uh, this tech observing you know sort of the overnight. And this is a big hospital, and that you know they're doing their inpatients on the overnight hours right. and that kind of thing. Um, and this tech says something to me, um, and, and it strikes me funny, and so I ask these follow up questions, and the tech essentially says to me, you know. Yeah, you know, we're not really busy tonight, but, you know, some nights it's just kind of crazy. And if you need a meal break and, and it doesn't look like you're going to get one based on the list that they give you or whatever, the rads who work the overnights on the weekend shifts are usually the, you know, the greenest, the lowest on the totem pole. Right. Um, and I found that I can get a meal break if I just pick up the phone. I, I look at somebody who's on my list who's got an implant or device that's not really well documented, and I'll pick up the phone. And even if I'm perfectly comfortable with it, I'll ask the the rad, you know, you know, Mrs. Smith, who's coming up next, you know, has got this implant. And I... You know, I'm not real comfortable with it. I need you to clear it or, you know, for me to scan her. Right. And then the rad would be like, oh, let's push Mrs. Smith to tomorrow, tomorrow morning and we'll let the daytime rads clear that. <laughs> right. you know? Clever. Great. Now I got a 45 minute meal break, yep. you know. <laughs> and the fact that there is that kind of inconsistency, you know, right. in terms of. Predictable inconsistency. Yeah. And, wow, you know, and, and it's like, okay. That practice group needs to recognize that, you know, that they're delivering inconsistent patient care. Um, you know, they're not following sort of a, a, a logical set of, right. of clinical decision-making steps, you know, for, for delivering care. Um, and they need an MRMD to essentially kind of step up and say, this is the structure we're going to use for making decisions. This is what the expectations, if, if you're reading you're reading MR, these are the expectations in terms of, you know, knowledge and skills and comfort level with that. Right. And if you're not there now, we need to identify a way to kind of build your knowledge, your skills, your competencies to get you where you need to be. Right. So the MRMD needs to do that on, on kind of the clinical decision-making side. And then the third role is an MRSE, um, MR safety expert. Um, and this is really sort of designed around um, a medical physicist, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to be a physicist. And in fact, um, uh, what I'll call super techs. So, you know, the, the Swiss Army knife, you know, technologist uh, who has an understanding of the physics, who, <laughs> <Robert>. ha <laughs> who has an understanding of, you know, patient care and, you know, patient compliance or non-compliance, you know, right. who has experience with implants and devices, who knows how to modify a pulse sequence if you're concerned about, you know, time-varying gradient and neuromuscular stimulation or radiofrequency heating or, you right. know, how are we going to make these trade-offs from, from a risk-benefit? So the MRSE um, is, is really a consultative role for either or both the, the MRSO or the MRMD, you know, some, I got in, you know, over my head or to an area where I'm just not terribly comfortable, you know, that I understand the physics correctly, right. or I understand how best to manipulate, you know, the, the study that we're going to do to get the SAR down to where it needs to be or whatnot. Right. Um, or, or why when I'm doing, 
two patients back to back, one of whom, you know, is 150 kilograms and the next one is 15 kilograms. Um, you know, why do I have the same SAR value when my B1 um, RMS is completely different for this? You know, right. they're both supposed to be measures of, of RF energy. Right. So why is one of them exactly the same and one of them totally different? You know? Right. So the MRSE is the phone a friend, really. You know, you have a question about patient care, about patient clearance. You don't understand how the the you know peculiarities of your MR system or the physics behind it or whatnot. You call that person up and you know, hey, help me understand why is doing this and <laughs> and how do I evaluate this patient as opposed to that patient when right. you know these numbers are the same and these other numbers are completely different and I thought everything is measuring the same. Is it like a pretty much like an Amazon Alexa? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can I scan this? <laughs> um, That's awesome. Well, I imagine you see a lot of different incidents happen with your role with the MRI safety uh, safety page. What would you say is the region or country that you see the most safety incidents, and what do you attribute that to? Uh, well, there's there's radically different levels of transparency and radically different levels of sort of uh, oversight and professionalism in, in different countries. So budgets, <laughs> right? um, it, it's, it's hard to make some uh, direct comparisons. Um, I mean, I, I, for example, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying, you know, U S is you better can, or worse than India or China or I mostly right. just want you to talk crap on Canada right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Canadians, they're the worst. We um, love you, Canada. Uh, <laughs> um, just kidding, I love Canada. I, I think, I think that there are some, some baseline conditions that create less safe practices. So, right. um, do you find that Europe, is more safety conscious than U.S. or equally, or I I find that there are different motivations. I th I think U.S. and Europe seem to be kind of on fairly similar sort of levels, but mm -hmm. the motivation for how they got there is very different in my estimation. Europe is tends to be more kind of regulatory and oversight oriented. Mm -hmm. Um. Right. um the U.S. tends to be more litigation-oriented. Right. Um, so this kind of goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, that there aren't regulatory or accreditation standards that would prevent the Columbini accident from happening again. But we have made some really significant changes in practice right. because everybody's afraid of getting their butt sued off. Right. Um, oh, and yeah. that's a potent motivation. It's not the most sort of reasoned motivation Ethical. because we do <laughs> we do lots of things because we're afraid of getting sued that probably if we thought about it from a from a risk management standpoint nobody's going to sue me over this or right. the relative risks of doing the thing that people are so freaked out about is so small you know and yet you know I got no problem doing triple dose runoffs right. you know and, and you know I don't don't give that a second thought, but right. I'm not going to scan this patient with a BB in their calf, you know, because <laughs> right. they're going to sue me and I'm going to lose my my tech license. Right. No, patient's going to be fine. Nobody's going to sue you. You're not going to lose your license. You're, you're paying attention to the wrong thing. Right. Um, and that's, that's not any individual's fault. Right. 
it's because we don't teach MRI risk. We don't teach risk management. We don't teach it to techs. We don't teach it to radiologists. We don't teach it to the medical physicists in the US. Europe does a much better job of teaching their medical physicists about um, MRI safety than we do. And, And one of the things that I think is is one of the most pervasive kind of urban myths within MRI is this idea that well if we're going to be safer we're going to be slower you know right. you know it's right. going to drag the whole process right. and and I can as as well as anybody I can come up with you know quote unquote process improvements you know oh mm-hmm. we're going to add this thing we're not right. going to think about how it actually integrates with process and workflow uh-huh. you know earlier conversation, Um, you know, we're just going to take this thing, we're going to add this, you know, we're going to do point of care, um, you know, EGFR testing, you know, but we're not going to put it anywhere in the process where you would want to make that decision about, are we going to give this patient, you know, contrast or not, you know, we're going to put it someplace where that decision has already been made, or we're going to put it someplace, you know, so far upstream that half the time that information gets lost and, uh, go ahead and give them, you know, contrast. I'm I'm sure that test result was fine. So we're not thinking about that. And so we're, a lot of these things that we're adding, my, my zone sign diatribe, you know, we're telling people you got to put zone signs up. We don't tell them why. We don't tell them what it's supposed to accomplish. You know, right. it's a checkbox. You know, and everybody's going to get focused on this checkbox, and we're going to ignore, you know, the bigger things. Yeah, purpose, the, right? the greatest sort of most direct example of this. So uh, I was at a facility. This was a number of years ago, um, right after um, Joint Commission survey had gone through, and. Um, walked into sort of the MRI and they had a, a kind of a hallway that fed into the control room, you know, and that hallway wound up just collecting all the stuff that got brought to MRR that never leaves, you know. So there were wheelchairs from the floors and portable gas tanks and stuff like that. And they weren't right next to the console or, or the magnet room door, but there was, you know, a bunch of stuff. And back behind, you know, the IV poles and, and all of the stuff that just kind of got collected there was a fire extinguisher cabinet. And so when we went through and I was talking with the techs there and I said, so when joint commission came through, I've been hearing a lot about them just getting totally worked up about checking fire extinguishers. Did they check your fire extinguisher? (laughs) Oh yeah. You know, they made beeline right for it. And I look over at where the fire extinguisher is and there are like two IV poles and a wheelchair and a portable gas cylinder sitting in front of <laughs> right. the, oxi- uh, the 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 fire, fire extinguisher cabinet. Yeah. The surveyor would have had to have like climbed over all this other crap, you <laughs> right. know, to check the fire extinguisher. And I asked, I was like, did they say anything about the stuff that you're storing here, the wheelchairs from IV poles from the floors or whatnot? No, they just, they looked at the fire extinguisher, they checked their box, they turned around, they walked out. Like, to the best of my knowledge, and I spend a lot of time looking at MRI accidents and adverse event reports, I have never seen a patient or a staff, caregiver, visitor ever harmed in MR from a portable fire extinguisher. I got... (laughs) 
pictures like you wouldn't believe of wheelchairs and IV IV poles, (laughs) medication pumps. Humanity there, right? You know? Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's a forest for the trees kind of thing. You're missing the the reason that people get injured in MR because you got a checkbox that says the fire fire extinguisher. extinguisher. Yeah. Um, And that kind of stuff just makes me nuts because you're there. Lacks critical thinking skills. Yeah, you're you're checking on things, but you have no idea what the the relative risks are or what it is that that you know, if you checked, would actually diminish the you know the risks to to patients and to caregivers. Right. I mean, techs get hurt a lot in oh, MR for sure. Who actually, cares about them, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I was actually learning MR back in 2009, uh, I was doing my clinical training, and one of our uh, technologists told me a story. It freaked me out. He told me a story about an IV pole that actually got pulled into the room, um, and he put his hand out to try to stop it, just out of reflex, and it pinned his hand up against the magnet. And he's like, you know, pinned up, and he's telling everyone to quench the magnet, quench the magnet, and nobody wants, you know, everybody's like, I'm not quenching the magnet. It's like the last thing they want to do, right? Lunchtime. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, long story short, um, you you know, they ended up being able to pry his hand off, but he had a glove on. It was very difficult. He showed me the x-rays. Oh, my gosh. It was, uh, you couldn't tell it was a hand. Um, so I was surprised his hand actually was still functional after seeing that. But it's, you, you're so right about that. When it becomes just a checkbox, it's right. it's detrimental. It is detrimental to what they're really there for, right? So I I I think that's one of the the challenges is we have we have this pretty big disconnect between accreditation and regulation. You know the 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 oversight for MRI safety. And the body of best practices. I mean, the body of best practices is really spectacular. I mean, there's setting aside whatever small contributions I may have made, you know, the, the, the body of work that is the now the ACR manual on MR safety is remarkable. Um, you know, it was reviewed and, and incorporated in the UK's MHRA MRI safety document. Mm-hmm. It's referenced in uh, a number of different European um, national standards in terms of MRI safety or aspirational bits on, on MRI safety. Um, the Australian New Zealand Royal College of uh, Radiology um, it, copied and pasted big chunks of the ACR, you know, document into into their MRI safety guidance. It has become de facto the worldwide standard for for MRI safety. Like an atlas, huh? <laughs> so so we've got this incredible tool right. on one hand and we've got effectively nothing, you know, in terms of of regulation and accreditation. And so facilities really kind of get a pick where on that spectrum they want to live. Um, You know, the the people who, you know, I'm going to do whatever the minimums I need for, you know, state licensure and and for accreditation can do very little. ACR accredited (laughs) put up on the wall, right? There was a period, so... If you get ACR accreditation, you know, they hand you a press kit, you know, uh-huh. so you can send to the local paper, oh, local TV stations or whatever, right. you know, you know, Bob's House of Imaging little, now, you know. Certificate, yeah. Right. And, <laughs> but the PR statement says, you know, about their MR accreditation, um, the, the 
pre-formatted PR um, public uh, press release thing yeah. says, um, you know, ACR as a demonstration of the highest level of quality and safety, you know, and the thing that, that, um, I, I find so strange is that the ACR does have the highest level of quality in that guidance document, but you look what of that guidance document is actually a part of their MR accreditation program. Right. And man, you need a magnifying glass to try and find right. correlating bits um, right. because they just, it's not there. Well, I know you said too that you're, you, you look up like, so what are you using to look up these adverse events or, and where do people go to report events? Because I feel like, um, I mean, if something happened, I, there's a person now that's designated to report those events because I work at a place that, you know, has those positions in place. But if I didn't and something happened, like, what am I supposed to, like, how do I, you know, approach that? Right. Um, <clears throat> Is that like... Um, so, depending on where you live, you may have state requirements. So, right. state of Pennsylvania. Uh, requires adverse event and near miss reporting in hospitals, but not in outpatient imaging centers. Mm. Um, so we're getting about half of the MRI adverse events if they happen equally at hospitals and outpatient imaging centers, because about half of MR is done on an outpatient basis right. or, or at IDTF type of facilities. Right. Um, um, so if you're in Pennsylvania, you have to report to Pennsylvania. Um, uh, Minnesota has some sort of state reporting system as well. Um, but I, nothing's mandated to report. It's all to the state level. The honor so, kind of, so oh. well, uh, so the data can be kind of skewed. Then yeah, the, well, the data is terribly messy. Um, oh. Very few states have um, requisite reporting systems. Um, right. Uh, those that do, um, very few of them actually share out their data or make it pub uh, public. Uh, Pennsylvania is the only state that I'm aware of that wow. every so often, every you know three to five years, they write up a paper that says, hey, we did an analysis of some of our MRI reported adverse events, and, and here's what we found. Right. They don't, you don't think it has anything to do with Dr. Canal being there in Pennsylvania, do you? Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's just coincidence. He or, said at the city council, he's like, we're going to make this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, don't um, know. I know, right? Uh -huh. so, so there are a small number of states that actually have mandatory reporting requirements. Um, everybody is supposed to report adverse events to the feds, to the FDA. Oh, yeah, MOD. Uh, right, so the MOD database. MOD is just the name of the interface that we see, the database search tool. The The program is called MedWatch. Uh, uh. So if you just Google M MedWatch, you know, adverse event reporting or whatever, right. um, it'll, it'll take you to the website um, that says, oh, so you want to report, you know, are you reporting as a patient or as a care provider? Oh, right. uh, it gives you different options for, uh, depending on that. But there are three criteria for reporting uh, to MedWatch. Um, if you kill somebody oh, right. um, with a drug or medical device, you have to report it to MedWatch. If, if the person dies, the reporting requirement is twofold. It's the both the site and the manufacturer of the device involved both have to report directly to the FDA. Mm -hmm. um, 
that's really the only unambiguous criteria for reporting. Right. The other two start to get murkier. Right. So the next criteria is serious injury. And I have two separate times I've asked the FDA what serious injury Seems means. subjective. Acoustic is serious to me. So the right. first response <laughs> I got back was, when I asked the question to the FDA, was, well, we're not clinicians, we don't make determinations as to what is serious or not. I'm, so, <laughs> so the site that injures the patient gets to make the determination whether it's serious enough to qualify for for reporting or not. That right. seems like you know the fox guarding the hen house. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. playing poker with a full house every time. <laughs> <laughs> um, the second time I asked, um, they said um, it's hospital admission is their benchmark for what constitutes serious. And I'm right. like, so a broken bone where you go to the ED and you get right. cast or, you know, multiple lacerations and you need stitches and you lost a lot of blood, but they're going to give you, you know, right. an IV for, for a couple hours before they send you home. Or RF burn. Right. None of those are serious because we didn't admit the patient to the hospital oh, and therefore they're not, right. they don't flip into the, the mandatory reporting. Right. Um, and once you get below, you've killed somebody, you get into injury situations, the reporting requirement is on the device manufacturer. Oh, so what that means is that the hospital or the imaging center essentially needs to say, this is real enough and we want it reported and we're going to pass this information along to the MR system manufacturer. Right. And they will report it. The third um, third one is unreasonable risk of either death or serious injury. Okay. So if we have a hard time defining what serious injury is, unreasonable risk of serious injury seems to be, you know, sort of extra vague and, and foggy. And right. um, in my opinion, the way that that should be interpreted is if something goes flying at the magnet, you know, if there had been somebody standing between that object and the magnet when it went flying, you know, right. was there a risk of them being seriously injured as a result of that? It, were they injured and yet there was a risk of a more serious injury if it had flown a different way or they'd been in a slightly different position? Right. Now, in my mind, that's unreasonable risk, you know. Was the patient burned, you know, right. and, you know, that, in my mind, is an unreasonable risk. Right. Um, and so those kinds of things I would like to see reported with right. much more frequency. Just based on your position within MRI, I imagine you hear about a lot of different safety events. And I'm curious, like, I'm guessing that at this point you've, you've heard them, you've seen them all, but is there any that still surprised you? Like, what was probably the most recent one that surprised you? Uh, well, just a couple of days ago, there was uh, a wheelchair in that went into the magnet in Ukraine um, that got picked up by a local TV station in Ukrainian, you know, or local newspaper in Ukrainian that, you know, I saw somebody posted something about it on Twitter and went to the website and did a Google Translate and, you know, right. figured out what was going on. Um I mean, I hear of all kinds of things that, you know, people will send me a private message of, you know, 
this just happened at a facility I happen to be familiar with that wasn't mine, you know. A right. friend I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, feel free to do those requests. Hy- yeah. <laughs> Hypothetically, I know this guy who, you know. Well, can we go ahead and give everyone your number? <laughs> <laughs> if you uh, want to reach out to me, reach out to me through the MRI Safety Group page on Facebook. Yes. And, and Has that been a challenge? Because there's a lot of, I mean, like, what what's some of the challenges you had with, you know, being the, the face of that group and... Um, what is the term? What is the? I, I feel like it has like to be challenging because of like how fast things move in admin, MRI, and just how you have to stay up on the education. Like just because you got trained ten years ago on what was happening doesn't mean that right now, you know, you still kind of know what you know, the right things are to do. Like so, it really has to be challenging to be in such a position. Well, the one of the things that I love so much about the the Facebook safety group page yeah. is. Um, so just like there are all these facilities and they get to choose where they want to be on this continuum of, you know, lowest common denominator to best practices, <laughs> um, the same thing is true with tax. Right. To a degree, right. you know. Um, sure. And I think many tax, especially if they're in smaller facilities um, or they don't have that much kind of professional uh, connection with with other tax in other cities and other magnets and, you know, other sites – they may think that, you know, the way it was when I was, you know, taught a year right. ago, five years ago, 10 years ago is the way it is. Right. And the the thing that I really love about that group is essentially sort of saying, no, there's there is a big wide world, you right. know, and there are people who have, you know, sort of specialty interests or skill sets or, you know, they're pushing the role of the MR technologist in places that that maybe make you nervous or uncomfortable. And, right. you know, but there are, there are techs, there are rads, there are medical physicists, there are admins, there are product and service vendors who continue to kind of push the envelope and and each in their own little way. So the idea that I'm I'm bringing people from, you know, a small community hospital in, you know, right, rural Arkansas or whatever into the group yeah. and letting them see, hey, wait a minute. You want to be the guy or woman who is like the person for cardiac or DTI, or maybe it's not even something clinical. Maybe it's something technical. Maybe you want to get into, you know, developing pulse sequences and you've got an idea for, you know, the next metal suppression pulse sequence (laughs) that's just going to kick everything else's butt, you know, the idea that, that, you know, who you are or were the day before you join, you know, is who you have to be as a tech, as a rad, as a physicist for the rest of your career. I love the idea that people come into that group and, you know, go, oh my God, I had no idea. Right. I had no idea that a guy who was trained as an architect, you know. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, such a passion for the field, right? <laughs> right. I did want to ask you, though, like if awesome. you had a time machine and you had to do it over again, would you choose the same route through architecture or would you choose a different route? Oh, man. Um, part of me is just, I'm so grateful for kind of the, the serendipitous opportunities that kind of fell in front of me as I was moving through. And some of that is just dumb, stupid luck. Um, some of it is amazing people who kind of, you know, helped me take the next step or the next five steps. Um, 
in some ways I feel like I'd be disrespecting, you know, fate and, and, and <laughs> a lot of people who helped me if I said, oh no, I'd redo it and I'd, you know, I'd change a whole bunch of things. Um, what's the saying that, that if you love your job, you never do a day of work in your life. Um, that's kind of how I feel like I've, I've. We're total hobbyists too for a living. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't. I mean, I can sit and I can tell you the sort of the sequence of events as to how I got here, but I don't know how I got here, right. you know, um, and there's no way on God's green earth that I could have imagined a path right. from where I was 25 years ago to, to where I am today Right, would never in a million years have occurred to me. Right. Um, and of course there, there are things that I wish I had done differently or would, you know, had done better. But I am just so amazed at where I am right now, and oh. so just unbelievably happy to be doing something that that I care so much about, that I feel like it it helps so many people. Um, right. I'm just yo, we are grateful in the field to have someone like you too. You know, I, I feel like just I know people who literally joined Facebook just to be a part of your page. <laughs> I'm like, hold on, you have a Facebook page? <laughs> I don't know anybody who doesn't know you. <laughs> um, but actually, that actually kind of lends me to my next question. Like, we ask all of our, our guests this, but um, what would you say has been the most satisfying or fulfilling moment of your MRI career? Man, I... It exclude me meeting Reggie and I. Yeah, of oh. course, the podcast visitors have been oh. amazing. Well, yeah. you know, I, I was trying to come up with something else just to keep you guys modest, but now that you've, you know, you hit on it. Um, there, there are probably a lot of sort of individual things that I could point to and say, you know, I'm really proud of that accomplishment or this accomplishment. But I think if you, if you try to find kind of the common thread between them, um, I think it really comes down to, you know, leaving things behind me better than I found them. You know, um, right. I got involved with the That's ACR awesome. safety committee because I was just out of my mind, frustrated that, that there were no facility safety standards. And then when I did that and I realized that there was a chance to do something similar with FGI and, you know, the, the design codes and I did that. And then, you know, um, getting frustrated with a lack of community and a lack of kind of open access, shared resources for everybody interested in MRI safety and, and, you know, forming the, the Facebook group. Um, and all of these different kind of steps, each of them is really geared towards leaving things in my wake better than I found them. Right. Um, and well, I think technologists and patients and just, all personnel with healthcare have you to thank as far as like uh, the influence you've had. I mean, you've literally left a wake of improvement. <laughs> I hope right. so. And uh, if, if that's what's on my tombstone, I'm, I'm, you know, I will be a happy dead person. You know? <laughs> Very cool. Well, I think uh, a lot of times with the Facebook uh, safety group, People only see the technical side with, of you, but we want them to see the fun side of you. Well. <laughs> <Yeah>. You <laughs> are maybe really just fun for guy. the last you few minutes do, of this yeah. <laughs> episode, we do a couple of rapid questions. So the rapid, so you got to answer them quickly. Okay, all right. We're Reggie or Robert, up. go. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Reggie, <duh. laughs> all right. But we are going to go do, fast. Do we come with up this. with like a you know a, a couple name for you guys, like Regbert or something like that? With <laughs> a new Benlo? Yeah. With a J Lo? What is it? No, let's not play that. Let's not play that. <laughs> 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 
Um, okay, rapid questions. Here we go. Okay. You ready? Yep. Texting or talking? Talking. Favorite day of the week? Day of the week? Uh, uh, Saturday. Nice. Okay. Well, Sundays is when we release the episodes, but okay. okay. <laughs> It'll be Sunday that week. Yeah, <laughs> Favorite U.S. city besides the one you live in? Um, Seattle. Oh, nice. Nickname your parents used to call you? Um, the So nickname I got on birth, um, both my sister and I got birth nicknames, was Bird. Although oh, that nice. didn't really stick, but, you know. <laughs> okay. So. Uh, I like that. Last song you downloaded? Oh, man. Um, probably Nelly is Cage the Elephant. Um, <laughs> I don't remember a specific song. It was probably an album. Oh, nice. Okay. Uh, would you rather be able to speak every language in the world or be able to talk to animals? Ooh. Speak every language in the world. Nice. I Fav- do enough traveling that I, I always feel like, you know, I, bet. I can't really click, you know, because right. I'm in places where I don't really speak the language. That bugs me. <laughs> Favorite holiday? Thanksgiving. How Mine can you too. not love a holiday that's all about eating <laughs> and getting too. people you love together? So. How long does it take to get ready? Um. Uh, However much time you're going to give me. <laughs> that's a good question. Okay. Uh, scale of one to ten, how good of a driver are you? Uh, I'm not bad, but I'm not Mario Andretti. I'm, I'm a six or, or a seven. Oh, okay. Scale of one to ten, how good of a driver would your wife say you are? <laughs> <laughs> are negative numbers allowed? <laughs> Fill in the pressure. A scale of negative ten to zero. <laughs> Fill in the blank. Taylor Swift is... Uh, somebody I think maybe I've heard one or two songs of. Okay. At what age do you want to retire? Do I want to what? At what age do you want to retire? Do I want to what? <laughs> I love the passion. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. Like hearing aids jokes. Do you wear hearing aids? What? <laughs> you got me. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, invisibility or super strength? Oh man, invisibility. Is it wrong for a vegetarian to eat animal crackers? <laughs> oh, that's legit. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, scale of one to ten, how good are you at keeping secrets? Oh, I'm good. Are I'm, you? I'm a ten. Nice. Okay. We're going to talk after this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ariel or Jasmine? Oh, man. Who are those? Jasmine. Oh, Disney. Yeah. My bad. Excuse yourself in the Sorry. conversation. Apparently <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have a sister girl. I'm more of a... Yeah. S- uh, or small children. Nala. <laughs> uh, first celebrity crush. And we'll go, actually, we'll go around the room. Go ahead. Oh, J-Lo. Easy. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. See, I'm an old dude, so like, you know, this is probably you. Gonna this is going way bit. back here. <laughs> um, Dave? Man. Mother from Spy Kids 1. What? Spy Kids 1? <laughs> I, I, I suppose I have to go Farrah Fawcett, so I told you I'm really oh, dating nice. myself here. Okay. Uh, for me, we should pull up each one of these, but <laughs> it would no longer be rapid. <laughs> J.B. Presley would be mine. Nice. Uh, Dawn or Dusk? Dusk. I know what you are. Yeah, I'm Dusk. I'm so Dawn. So Dawn. If you could travel back in time, what period would you go to? Oh, man. Is back the only option? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you start all this MRI safety stuff early? Yeah. 
I, I, if I got to like go back and give an earlier version of myself some advice, I'd probably oh. just like go back to you know like high school and you know. It's a good call. Don't yeah. tell me that ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, tell myself, you know, just trust yourself more. You know, right. I, I think, I think, I think all of us kind of get messages of, you know, whether you're supposed to do it a certain way, and right. you know, oh, and, that's and, so true. I mean, I, I, I suppose I've done a fairly good job in my life so far of of taking my own advice, and right. uh, but I would love to have started earlier than I did. <laughs> Favorite junk food? Oh, um, the the salsa, um, garden salsa, um, sun chips. Thank you. Ooh, oh, my sister loves one. those. Actually, that was really good. Uh, what's yours, Reggie? Um, like Candy, Skittles, like sweet stuff. Yeah, yeah, Skittle, Starburst, that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Now, see, I'll I'll down a pint of Ben and Jerry's. You know, oh, nice the, ice cream. Ice cream yeah, you're my guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, favorite childhood TV show? Um, Hogan's Heroes. Uh-huh. Again, I'm dating myself, so nice. Only the really. You and I were talking about this the other day. We're going. In, we're, we're we're diving into it. We we talked about Tailspin, right? Ducktales. My favorite Batman the Animated Series was a good one. I used yeah, to watch that almost he's all one of the, the time. Superhero nerds. Yeah. Um, what about you? Ducktales. Favorite childhood show. I feel like the first thing that's popping off would be uh, Saved by the Bell. Oh. Uh-huh. Dang, how dang, yeah. I was thinking cartoon, but yeah. So was I initially, but there's too many cartoons. Screech kind of guy. We're we're loony, we're toony, we're all little. I don't know. <laughs> um, favorite ice cream flavor, and then we'll stop soon. But uh, all right, well, since I said Ben and Jerry's, um, oh, yeah. it's either um, Tonight Dough or uh, New York Super Fudge Chunk. I, okay. I kind of go back Cookies and forth. And cream. I'm just. I like to keep it basic. Strawberry. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I would have thought basic would be vanilla, but... Uh, favorite number? Favorite number? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Is it... Oh, I'm going to embarrass myself because I don't remember it specifically. With uh, the Lamour frequency, uh, <laughs> megahertz per Tesla, 42.28 oh, yeah. Megahertz per Tesla. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> On page 30. Yeah, that's right. uh, have you ever worn socks with sandals? Be honest, Toby. No, uh, I can say that because uh, I never wear sandals. So. Yeah. I'm a man's I'm, man. I'm a tennis here. shoe dude, hey, man. You like that. <laughs> Drive uh, my wife crazy. Too, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. Would you. This is kind of random. Unlike the rest of them. I know, right? <laughs> uh, what does a person need to be happy? The desire to be happy. A hug? Bring I, it in. Yeah. I was thinking in MRSO. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> uh, <A hug. laughs> all right. And last, but certainly not least, is double dipping at a party ever acceptable? I have to admit that I'm, I'm a... I'm guilty of double dipping, oh. you know. If the dip is better than the chip, you know, I what if I'm, it's the garden salsa chips? Well, see, then you don't need. To. Then you don't need to, you know. Oh. But but you know, you get like the the store brand, you know, thin potato chips or something like that, right. and and like a good dip, uh, you know, good French onion dip or something like that. That's I awesome. might 
find myself double dipping, but I'm going to do it when everybody else's heads turn the other way. So. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, we think we covered it all. Actually, let's do one. Right. We had a guest question too, right? Oh, actually, yes. We have several guest questions. While, we, while he pulls that up, I wanted you, if you had any advice for someone who kind of wanted to, maybe not traditionally MRI trained, but kind of wanted to follow in your footsteps, someone who might have the passion uh, for MRI, like what would you suggest they kind of do? Like, Man, they, you know, soak yourself in it, you know, right. try and figure out, um, How you who are the people who share, you know, mm-hmm. um, well, let me, let me qualify that there, there are lots of people who are willing to share, you know, their thoughts and opinions, but right. find somebody who is kind of shaping uh, opinions, um, right. um, somebody who, um, is coming at this from uh, a personal experience and they have chosen a direction and they're kind of pushing it. Um, and they're, um, you will find people in the industry who are willing to kind of help guide you. Uh, yes. Look to um, the literature. Right. Um, man, a lot of the scientific literature is is impenetrable in terms of the way that it's written. Um, so, you know, find folks who can help you translate it into normal human being speak, you know? <laughs> right. Um, right. But there's, there's so much information uh, that's out there right. um, that just commit yourself to, to trying to absorb as much of it as you possibly can. And that will mean that, you know, you're going to go to lots of different sources. If you find one source that you're getting all your information from, you're going to get one viewpoint and that's right. it, you know? So, right. so share the love. <laughs> right. Nice. Thank you. We got some fan questions, Toby. And actually this first one was thought provoking for me. So I'm curious your thoughts, but somebody wrote Mitchell wrote, thank you for submitting your questions, by the way, Mitchell. Uh, we pat our patients from the transmit body coil to not have near field burns. So why on transmit receive coils do we not have to pad around the entire body part in the coil, such as perhaps a knee? That is as fantastic question. So, um, and the reason for that is SAR. Um, um, SAR is awful, horrible, needs to be beaten to death in an alley somewhere. Um, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I need to be the one beaten, or I have to, be, I have to do the beating. <laughs> I cough, man. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so, so SAR was developed um, and implemented in MR for diffuse thermal loading, Right. And the question goes to burns. Burns are not diffuse thermal loading. They're focal heating, right? So, so we're using this tool that, that was developed for diffuse thermal loading. We're trying to apply it to focal heating. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's all heating, right? So the same tool should work great for both. Well, no, it doesn't. Because one of the reasons is SAR, we say it's averaged across the whole body, right? Right. If... Um, if it's chilly outside and I have a fire going and I stick my hand in the fire, on average, I am perfectly comfortable. 90% of my body is freezing and 10% of my body is burning up. Right. You know, if we average those temperatures across my whole body, I'm perfectly comfortable, which we know is not the case, right? right? That's a good point. So SAR as a whole body average number um, is not going to give us useful information for any one point in the body. 
Um, so part of it is SAR is the wrong tool for the job um, to, to really tell us much of anything about focal burn risk. I wonder if we could somehow implement the use of uh, surface temperature of the page, like somehow monitoring the surface temperature. Cause I feel like that's the B1 RMS is really starting to play a bigger role when it comes to like the classifications, right? Of implants. And, and, so, yeah. so, okay. So SAR is, we're going to, we're going to figure out how much energy we're pumping into this patient. Right. And then right. we're going to divide it across the patient's whole body. Right. Even though we're not pumping energy into the patient's whole body, we're just that that's the way we're going to report this number. Right. Right. B1 RMS is how much is coming out of the body coil. Right. What's, how much energy are we playing with as, as a sort of, as its own measure, not how much averaged across all of your body, right. how much energy, right? At least that's consistent data, right? Right. So if, if I have a, a, a votive candle and I have a bonfire, right, I can choose a small enough unit of space around that votive candle that, you know, my measurement of the energy involved in the votive candle and the bonfire are equal to one another, right? right? But they're not. Right. Bonfire has a whole lot more energy, <laughs> right. right? So if we measure energy output instead of energy output per some volume, some mass or whatever, right. now all of a sudden we get more reasonable numbers um, or more actionable numbers. Now right. that doesn't tell us specifically what the risk of a patient getting a burn is, but it does tell us you know, the power's too high. Right. right. You know, what What magnitude of energy do I need to be worried about? You can still get a burn from a votive candle just like you can from a bonfire, but you can get it a whole lot quicker and in a whole lot more, you know, greater number of ways with right. a bonfire. Um, so, so part of the problem is just the SAR is the wrong tool to, to approximate uh, risk. Um, the second thing is that... If we're doing a, a, a TR knee, right, um, we can actually pump in at first level mode um, for short durations of time, we can pump uh, 40 watts per kilogram of energy, RF energy, into the knee. Mm -hmm. 40 watts per kilogram. Wait a minute. I thought we were capped at four watts per kilogram, right? right? How can right. we do 10 times that amount of energy? Right. Because... If we did, if we do four watts per kilogram and the patient weighs 100 kilograms, we're pumping 400 watts of power into that patient. That's the magnitude, that's the size of the bonfire, right? right. If we do 40 watts per kilogram into a knee that weighs three kilograms, five kilograms, you know? Yeah. It's, and, that, and that's the momentary you're actually averaging out at 20 watts per kilogram, you know, uh, you know, over more than six seconds. Um, so even though it's a higher number per unit mass, it's a much lower total power. The, the size of the bonfire is much smaller. Oh, so the saying. risk of developing patient burns in any TR local coil because we're depositing energy only into those tissues that we're trying to get signal out of. So we need to use much less total power because we're not sort of yeah. spreading it everywhere and we're just going to try and get, you know, 
It's not a buckshot. L4. Yeah. <laughs> right. It, so you want to look at the disc between L4 and L5, right? And you're going to do, you know, body coil transmit. That patient is getting RF right. from the middle of their thighs up to, you know. It's almost C-spine, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we're shooting RF all over the place. Right. Um, and we're only trying to get signal from this one little spot right here. Right. So if we only measured the RF, if we could direct the RF just to that disc that we want, you know, to, to image, the total RF would be trivial. Right. Which is what we're able to do when we use TR, local TR coils. Um, so the size of the bonfire is much, much, much smaller when the volume of tissue inside the coil is much, much smaller, inside the transmit coil. That's a good illustration. Yeah, that's awesome. Man, All right. tell me this has been great. Well, we got more. Uh, next question is from William. How reliable is EP nurse interrogation of pacemakers? Is it common for EP to discover faulty leads and cause a hard stop prior to MRI and or God, has help, God help us after MRI? So uh, I, think, I think the question is less about an EP nurse and is more about process. Right. So if you have a, a standardized process for interrogating devices um, and you have somebody competent executing that process, I don't care if it's a tech, if it's a tech aide, if it's the EP nurse, if it's the janitor, right. you know, if you have sort of a flow, you know, we're going to do this. If the result of that is A, then we do this. If the result of that is B, then we do this other thing. And as long as the person who is running through that series of steps is trained and competent and you know knows how to use the, the device or whatever, um, then, then I'm less concerned with whether it's an EP nurse or an MR tech or a tech aide or... Right. You know, the EP you don't care about themselves. the credentials, you care about the flow chart, I guess. Yeah. The, the, the process. The process. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, with the understanding that whoever's doing that has, you know, sort of the, the minimum level of competence necessary to, to do the task and do it well. Right. And I'm sure they wouldn't be EP nurse if they did. <laughs> we kind of talked about this a few times, but uh, uh, this, this next question is from Susan. So thank you, Susan. I know the... I know that ACR recommends to have two staff members at all times in the department. Do you believe this will ever be mandated? I anonymous reporting. <laughs> <laughs> I I would love to see it happen. I I mean, I know that the accreditation organizations have They've been slow to to embrace and adopt. You know, is any other country seems like doing the it? logistics of implementing a Not really. regulation like that would be right. Yeah, it's tough. That is tough. Good question. Like more, more. I can understand where more places would need it than others. I mean, you the, the flow changes dynamically, but it's always great to have that backup when you need it. It's when you when you don't when you when you don't have it and you need it is when you're just like ah right right. And it's too late by then. <laughs> Allison uh, has the next question. So thank you, Allison. Recommendations for focusing your studying for the boards? Uh, for the ABMRS boards, um, the, the suggestions that I typically give are um, absolutely you want to know ACR MRI safety manual. Um, uh, from These are 
all the resources that I'm identifying are free and, and, you know, either you already have them or you can get them easily. So ACR, um, MR safety manual. Um, I would also take a look at the gadolinium sections of the ACR's, uh, contrast manual. Um, the contrast manual covers all contrast. So 85, 90% of it, you can throw away for the purpose of the ABMRS boards. Um, I would, uh, take a, close look at every MR system operator's manual has a safety chapter um, and look through that really carefully. Find a friend or a colleague who works on a system from a different manufacturer. If you're a Siemens shop, find a GE friend or a Philips friend or a Canon friend and trade safety chapters um, and then read them side by side because you will most likely be surprised to identify how differently different manufacturers talk about the exact same thing. Um, and it's really important for both in the MRSO role and for the exam uh, itself to right. understand, you know, uh, DBDT is time varying gradients is, you know, imaging gradients is in just from a vocabulary standpoint and an application standpoint, you know, understanding, when somebody says this, what they're really talking about, or the way that I was originally taught it, is they're referring to this other thing. Um, and, and having that cross-vendor language vocabulary is really important. That's a good answer. Thank yeah. you. Well, other than the Facebook page, do you have any other you know sources of access or anything else you want to kind of shout out that people can kind of reach you on or get more education on? Uh, where do you start, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, people are always welcome to reach out to me um, individually, and I'll, I'll be happy to point them in, in whatever direction That's I can. Awesome. Uh, yeah. The Facebook page, the MRI Safety Group Facebook page, is a great peer resource. Right. Um, and people are always sharing, you know, papers and articles and, you know, their yeah. own policies and their own experiences. Um, and, and it's a great place to go and be a sponge. Awesome. Well, thank you for the influence you've had in the MRI world. Yeah, keep going. Specifically with that with safety, you've left a wake of improvement. (laughs) Don't retire. Uh, (laughs) Don't what? (laughs) And you should genuinely be proud of that. So, And and sincerely thank you for that. For sure. um, Did you have anything else you want to cover, Reggie? I don't want to go, man. I'm not ready. Yeah, I'm sure we can figure out something. Uh, no. He has, he has commitment issues. <laughs> um, well, I guess this is when we say our goodbyes. So thank you again for watching Zone 3 Podcast. Yes. Thank you for liking. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for telling your friends about us. And um, it's been an honor to be joined today by Toby. So thank you, Toby. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. And um, real quick before we go, I just want to say that, member, if you, if you want one of these notebooks, we are only giving away two. So make sure you leave a comment, let us know, you know, just reach out to us about safety in the comments and how you feel about everything. And uh, Show me the inside of that real quick. I think it's helpful. It's got a little cheat sheet for those new techs. Yeah, I'll put a link down in the description. Some of you old vet techs too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, really big shout out to all the support that Aegis has given us too. We appreciate your engagement. We appreciate... you know, everything that you guys do. Yeah. And we appreciate you, Toby. So thank you. And thank, thank you, you guys. Zone three podcasts. We're out. Bye everybody. Bye.